People always ask me, like, I'm lost. How do I find my way? And I'm like, well, one, what is important to you? Where are your values? And then what brings you joy? And I think innately, that's what I was doing as a kid until up to today. I was just doing things that brought me joy because I was in a place of unhappiness and all I was looking for was a feeling of happiness. And I always had interests of design and architecture, but I, did I know at that time I was going to pursue it? No. This week's guest is Sarah A. Abdallah, polymath, innovator and founder of New York-based bespoke architecture and design studio Functional Creative Design. In this two-parter, we spend the first hour exploring Sarah's experience of being born a biracial child to Egyptian immigrant parents and growing up in New York with two younger siblings, immersing her in a culture that nurtured her natural curiosity, her parents instilled in her the foundational values of human kindness, the importance of education and a respect and understanding of other faiths. Sarah discusses how she developed an appreciation and love for the environment, her deep spirituality, questioning conventional wisdom and rejecting her parents' pressure to conform. She recounts overcoming the limitations of dyslexia and her childhood curiosity of after-school clubs that helped shape her into the thought leader and entrepreneur she is today. On her prolific educational journey through psychology, art therapy, higher education and interior design, Sarah also discusses how serendipity led her at 21, a first-generation Muslim Egyptian-American, to live with the then 70-year-old iconic lawyer, Jewish civil rights activist and philanthropic fundraiser for New York University, Naomi Levine. In part two, we dive deep into Sarah's journey prior to starting her design studio, Functional Creative Design, working with Rockwell Group, Tony Chin Associates, Perkins and Eastman and Grand Hotels, and her vision and focus which led her to starting her own studio. For anyone with children, hearing Sarah's journey and experience will provide valuable insights into encouraging young children's curiosity and appreciation for other cultures and backgrounds and the values of education. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. It's super exciting to be sitting in a room at Neuhaus doing um, a face-to-face interview yes. again. I know, finally, that yeah. we're getting finally getting together in person. I mean, you could be fooled into thinking that we're returning to normality, but that isn't happening. No, I, don't. I think we're, we're, it's all about the new normal. I think there is no way to get getting back to where we were before, even though sometimes I fall asleep and wake up and I'm like, is it 2019? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but hey, we're just going to have to establish how to be again with other mm. humans and establish more intimacy and a physical format that's more comfortable. Well, I'm sure we're going to come and talk about that in a bit more detail. Uh, first of all, I want to give a shout out to um, Rodney Durso, a previous guest that recommended that we interview you. And uh, I ov- obviously we should uh, acknowledge that we're both co-members of Neuhaus, the, the community here in New York. But it was Rodney Durso that recommended. So um, I think it's a, a, a great idea. So... Um, we're going to come and talk about your life in um, your business around functional creative design. And we'll certainly ask you to <laughs> define that okay. that term and what it means and uh, discuss the work you're doing just now and how it's impacting the future of work and the future of the spaces we occupy. But before we do, can you talk a bit about your childhood and your education? From what I understand, you were born to Egyptian immigrants and mm-hmm. uh, who'd moved here to the US and you have two siblings um, but 
beyond that, I don't really know much else from what I've some of the research I've done. Yeah, so yeah, maybe yeah. you could give us a little bit more detail about um, your upbringing. Yeah, I was born here right in Manhattan in New York City. Um, my father at the time uh, was working for NYU slash Bellevue. It was the same hospital. And so um, he was a... Uh, he was working there, and so that's why I was born there, actually. I was. I always asked, why was I born in the city? Um, grew up in the tri-state area, 30 minutes out of the city. Actually, it's closer. It's like my dad said, door to door from where he had to go to, you know, to the hospital. It was mm-hmm. 10 minutes because he would commute at, and do the night shift. Um, and he was a certified cl- clinical laboratory technician um, and then moved up and, like, was in charge of the laboratory. Um, so chemistry... Um, bachelor's degree mm-hmm. in chemistry. My mother, as an accountant, um, worked for the MTA and the corporate offices down in Wall Street, um, and she was there the entire time. So both worked for the city of New York, mm-hmm. um, and I, yeah. What brought so, them to the U.S.? Oh yeah. So my father came. My father came actually alone, and he said with two, three hundred dollars in his pocket. Um, in the the early seventies, and he shared an apartment in the city with like four other Egyptian, you know, guys. So he was qualified at that point. He was qualified at that point, but you know, in the seventies, mm-hmm. how do you prove coming from another country your certifications? Yeah. There was really difficult, right? So he he started like from the ground up, like working. You know, even though he had he had a BA, he was doing you know just different jobs, mm-hmm. you know, just to kind of get by wow. until he met somebody in his industry who then introduced them introduced him to someone at the hospital that then got him in an interview, mm-hmm. and it's really incredible because at that time uh, it was all about who you knew, and I think it's still the case. Right? I was about to say, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> what's changed? <laughs> yeah. And my mother, so my dad went back after he saved enough money to go see his family, and he was like, "I wanna, I wanna get married." Mm-hmm. At the time, I think Egypt was a different place than it was today. It was really open. Um, I, I asked my mother the story, and I would say, "Hey, how did you and Baba like meet?" And she was like, "Well, we had a what you call a speed dating event at the mosque," and she <laughs> sat in a room, and. One one man at a time would come through, and it was kind of like a lineup. And she would say, "Number one, two, and three, And one of them was my father. And then they got like a personal, like one-on-one conversation. And I guess my father won. Wow! <laughs> the speed dating. There's a TV event. show now. <laughs> <laughs> at the mosque. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so yeah, that's how they met. They dated briefly, like chaperone dates. Mm-hmm. And um, then my father came back um, to to the U.S. to do some work and then went back. Flew, he bought my mom's wedding dress here in New York City and then took it back. And they had the wedding there in Cairo. Mm-hmm. And then um, I actually was just going through old photos with my father this past weekend where he was showing me photos um, at JFK. Um, I think they f- flew on – she flew TW – a. A. Yeah. Yeah. And they got her dressed up in her wedding um, dress. Like at arrival, there was a photo at JFK of my mom coming out of the, the airline. Mm-hmm. And my father dressed in a suit with a red bow tie. It was so cute. Wow. And they had a reception 
um, at a hotel nearby the hotel to kind of greet my mom to the U.S. <laughs> wow, amazing. Yeah, so she was 11 years younger than my father and um, so and my dad. So I guess my mom was 19 at the time, almost 20. Mm. She had started her uh, – she was in, in college at the time, but so she had to finish college here mm. in the States. Um, she she was studying um, she loved English like English literature was her major and my at the time there was like no real like she's my father's like all teachers are like losing their jobs right mm -hmm. now like you should switch you know your major and he's like I think you should do accounting and my mom's like I hate numbers and I hate math like but he pushed her she went into accounting only because you know, it was more secure, like, industry, like, mm. in the mid-70s. So, like, my dad, as I, I just recently asked, when was the wedding? And he said April 1975 is when they got married. And shortly after, she, you know, flew alone on T TWA to come to JFK, where my dad greeted her. Um, Interesting time to come to New York. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it was such a bustling. Isn't it around the time when it was going through a financial crisis? And, That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. A lot of upheaval and mm. um, and then also a lot of culture happening. Yeah, yeah. it was really gritty. Mm. But they they got a small apartment in Jersey City, uh, which is ten minutes from downtown Manhattan. And a lot of um, Egyptians, Muslim Egyptians, mm. were immigrating around that same time. So it was like everybody was talking to each other. It's either you go live in you know Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. In Bay Ridge or in, in Jersey, Jersey City. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny we in yeah, but it's all word of mouth, right? It's like if you're if you have other people from your culture community uh -huh. that you know, it's like oh, where should we go? They then I know. you need to have that community around you. That's to right. Sort of maintain the, that's sort right. Of the, the culture. Yeah, and um, yeah, so my parents immigrated here not just alone. Like around the same time, mm. there were other young couples you know, like moving from Egypt to here also because there was a lot of upheaval in Cairo, right, mm -hmm. um, politically. Um, and I think it was the time of Nasser. No, it was after Nasser. Wouldn't it, was it have after been Anwar Nasser. Sadat? Oh, Anwar Sadat. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, so he, he was like, I asked my father all the time, why why did you, like, leave and come here? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I wanted a, the American dream, like the opportunity to, you know, do more, mm -hmm. you know, with our education. You know, a lot of people are educated and weren't able to get well-paid jobs. And, you know, sometimes that's still the case, unfortunately, you know, mm -hmm. and people have to leave to other countries to find find other ways yeah. to continue to grow. Um, so what about their, their combined influence on you um, and your personality and your yeah. worldview and your values? Yeah, so I think... I've, um, I think between uh, arriving here, getting married, you know, in the mid seventies, like landing in Jersey City and starting like their, you know, their their life together as the family grew, after, you know, past me. I think we were living in a small one bedroom apartment that was really cramped, and um, I think I remember one time visiting one of my parents' friends, and they 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 had a house and a backyard and I was like I looked at my dad and I'm like I want a backyard <laughs> I want more room you know and he just looked at me and you know I think that kind of stemmed like a, a long a long think, thinking process on his end because 
months after, like shortly after, basically, him and my mom started looking at apartments, you know, especially because they were expecting my brother. And, uh, you know, it's just like two kids and two adults and then a third child on the way. You need more room. And so they landed in Bergen County in a really quaint, small town um, that really historic, really historical town um, that basically I grew up. I grew up in, um, and, you know, would sneak, I would sneak back into the city when I was 15, um, with my friend who, her mom was a single mom and I used to stay with them and I used to sneak in and go all to the nightclubs at night. My <laughs> parents don't know this. So like when they listen yeah. to this, they're, <laughs> they're going to be like, what did she do? <laughs> um, and you know, went to the hottest, hottest spots in the city that people used to talk about the lamplight, the palladium, wow. <laughs> the tunnel, you know, and they had no idea. No, they had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea, but I was lucky, you know. And back then, you just popped a token uh, <laughs> in the subway. Wow. And the subway was not safe. You yeah, know? I was going to say, yeah. yeah. 15, 16 years old. Yeah. Well, we, t- we, we took the path in, and we were pretty much on foot. Once in a while, we would we'd get on the subway to get to the next location. But typically, we'd walk, you know, all to, like, the downtown locations of all the nightclubs. Wow. That's very cool. Yeah, but I think I think you were asking me like, um, what well, the values it? in your worldview? I mean, a lot yeah. of immigrant um, children are very driven by their parents because, as you said, dad came with three hundred dollars in his pocket, wanting success, mm-hmm. the American dream, and I think it is fair to say that a lot of immigrants, immigrants families push their children in certain directions law medicine mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. two prime examples yeah and just wondered if that pressure they were well, not pressure but encouragement to exceed expectations was placed on you that you felt a mm-hmm. an expectation i think i think i think i have to start like i have to really start as like as a ch- young child i was really interested in a lot of things and because they were they didn't have a support system like aunts and uncles around to like help them with the kids like mm-hmm. they my parents fought a lot and it was like a, a really at times a really difficult like space to be in hearing them argue and fight and I was looking for an outlet to not to be home to hear that and so when I was in middle school and and um high school I looked for opportunities to stay in school longer I didn't want to go home so I joined the poetry club I joined the acting club like literally every single evening there was an after school activity or club I joined it Mm -hmm. and I love poetry and I was so excited to learn more about poetry I was excited about acting because I would um watch my father and mother and like when we were kids we would watch these things called masrahayat masrahayat are like these theater like comedy theater that was like filmed back anywhere between the 40s 50s 60s and 70s mm-hmm. that's why egypt is so well known for it's the arts yeah. right and so i was like i want to learn how to act you know and i i joined the art club and so i would paint and i, I used to um draw paint and sculpt starting at the age of six. And the same art teacher that I had in elementary school was in high school. And so she really encouraged me and pushed me to, like, actually pursue um, a BFA. Um, 
it's just it's amazing how many people influenced my like growth but I think I was just an the reason I wanted to to be outside of the um the house really made me like then pursue my own interests right my parents didn't encourage me to do any of that they were so busy work both working commuting back and forth between New York City and the suburbs with three children with no help you know and so I remember one distinct day because my dad said, I don't care what you where you are, you better be at the dinner table at 5 p.m. because he really wanted to spend that one hour with us or two hours that he had catching up with us and see us because he was working a day shift and a night shift. He was working two shifts. Um, and he looked at me and he said, Sada, where do you go right after school? Because why are you rushing home? Like, I see you, like, sometimes, like, rushing in the door while I'm pulling into, like, the driveway. And I was like, oh, I, I'm i on the poetry club Mondays, Tuesdays. It's art class. You know, Wednesdays is, I forget what else I did. You know, Thursdays was definitely the, a night that I was doing, um, I was doing a theater, theater um, club. And, and then shortly after, I joined um, the uh, track and field and uh cross country and i pursued i was an athlete i was actually one of the best one of the best athletes in high school college and grad school like i just it was part of like that shaped who i was um and it was like sort of what i call today my moving meditation or you know it's and it was like sort of therapy because i didn't really have anyone to talk to about what was happening at home i was sometimes getting close to some of my teachers like my art teacher or my typing teacher at the time <laughs> learned how to type on a typewriter <laughs> um and i was i was born i wish that had happened when i was going to uh, school it <laughs> happened for girls that were doing sort of uh typing but guys yeah. didn't do it and i look back and regret oh funny we, I didn't we know weren't that. yeah there were girls and guys in my class i mean no, i i was no. not my school not scotland in not scotland no. oh no there's quite sort of clear delineation between what the boys and girls did. Yeah, I think it's because the time period I was, I was born and raised in, I had one foot into technology and one foot out, mm. and so not cons- like my my sister and my, my brother are millennials, but like for me, I like literally have, I feel like I am, but part of me is not. You know, there is a I term shy one, of- one of our guests called um, I think it was Michael Ventura. Um, who runs uh, an agency in the west of the village called Sub Rosa, uh-huh. written a book called Applied Empathy. It's very good. Okay. Um, he said he sits in between that Gen Z and millennial generation. That's and right. he had a name for it. I wish I could remember. But he oh. said that it, there is a four-year yep. crossover period where yep. you don't really fall into the characteristics of either. That's right. And that's probably you. Me, mm. yeah. And, um, and so I can relate to both, right? But I never felt like I was part of either, you know? Um, but I think my, both of my parents, they grew up in a secular household back in Egypt. So not really with any religion, even Mm. though they grew up Muslim. Um, they, they both found religion a little, like got more practicing, like as they got a little bit older, Mm -hmm. I think my mom did right before she came and married my father, her sister was in the hospital. Um, and some woman was preaching about God and told her, you know, 
and then that's when my mom started becoming wore wore the head the hijab yeah. the mm-hmm. headscarf, and um, and my dad you know again he didn't really grow up with really a religion at the time Egypt was so open mm-hmm. and secular because yeah. there was the French influence the British influence and all these other things happening culturally. Muslim Brotherhood were suppressed. They were they yeah they were work. really not yeah. part of that that time period, and um, so. I think my dad encouraged culture. Um, like every Sunday morning, he wanted all us kids to get up and not sleep in. So he would play, you know, some some like famous Egyptian song and 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 be like drumming on some pot. Wake up, you know. And he would be like, "Umu umu" means get up, you know. <laughs> it was so fun. And we were like, "Dad, it's so loud, stop!" And my mom was really that taught taught us about being good and God and. You know, and they they encourage us. Education was a big part of like what what they taught us, like to get ahead. We need to get educated. We have to go, you know, get our college degrees. But I was the first in my family to get a master's, and um, I, th- I think they didn't anticipate that. You know, they were like, I was just on a trajectory, like leadership, business, um, giving back uh, to the community. I literally did all those things at the age of eight and upward. And um, my parents were I, – I went to Catholic school when I was a kid, being Muslim at a Catholic that's school. Un, that's unusual. Yeah, it's very unusual. Uh, was that through choice? Yes. Or districting? Yeah. No, no, no. My parents wanted um, – they thought public – at the time uh, we were in Jersey City, they didn't think that there was a good, safe public school, so mm-hmm. they put us in Catholic school. So every Wednesday I would go to church and read about the Bible – but my mom thought it was good a good idea because she's like, even though you're Muslim, he's like, you know, Muslims need to know and learn the Bible and mm-hmm. the Torah, the Old Testament. Yeah. And so, like, she encouraged us to learn. And then every Sunday I had different friends from different backgrounds. I would go to Pro- Protestant church or Lutheran church or a Catholic church. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know, Dana invited me to go to her Lutheran church. Oh, of course, go. Mm-hmm. And... Um, she was excited that I was interested in God and learning different, you know, versions of it. But she would always remind me, don't forget, you're Muslim. <laughs> <laughs> but th- by the time I was eight, I was learning about Buddhism. And by the time I was 10, I was like, what is all this organized religion? Why? why what? The, what's the difference? And when I was growing up, I thought there was only one Mus- like there was only one type of Muslim. I didn't know that there was other sects, yeah. right? And I... I just would just sit at home in my room and think, why? And there, I thought, um, you know, Africans were Africans and Arabs were Arabs, but no, there was different countries. And and I, I kept thinking, well, why are we so broken down into like um, subjects? And 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 I guess you know, it, it was it's really people want to put a a name to towards something and. As a young child, I was confused. It's almost like I, I was born into uh, an era or time period, and I was like, "Why does everyone have labels for everything?" And I was a very young, confused child, you know. But it was so interesting because I was just continually reading, and I would ask for new books to read. And I think that's why I'm a spiritual person now, you know. And it, it took a long journey of forty years to get there, right? And um, 
because of it, I was looked at as the black sheep of my family. You know, like I would always push every single boundary. I would ask questions. I was very inquisitive. Like my parents are like, um, why? I would say, well, why do you believe this? She's like, because that is the way it is. Like, and I'm like, well, that's not good enough. Even though I did practice it. I was I practiced in Muslim. I I I even helped go like put together like um, a Muslim camp, and I was um, I had a leadership role in it. But I didn't I didn't drink all the Kool Aid, you know, <laughs> as one would say. I just I did it to go through it to learn to understand. I wanted to understand where everybody. What what was everybody feeling? What did they? How are they connecting? But that was the same thing when I went to the Lutheran Church or the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church. For me, it was it was a time of observing and learning. Because from everything I've read about you, um, the word polymath sprung to mind. Yeah. Um, and the way you describe yourself there as being, I mean, obviously, very curious child, mm-hmm. uh, questioning. Almost bordering on nonconformity, mm-hmm. That's uh, right. challenging authority. Where do you think that came from? Do you think it was innate or was it something that your parents encouraged? I definitely don't think they encouraged it. Mm. Um, I I think they, at, at times they would get frustrated. You know, I just was a curious child and um, I think it, it was literally innate in me like not to conform Mm. um i don't know if it was like an ancestral um thing that was coming through saying don't conform because there was some so much conformity in the past Mm -hmm. but something inside me always told told me no like Mm -hmm. i was like well i want to do it differently and i just was it was almost like you know two sides of a magnet and you felt pulled towards the other side to do something different Mm-hmm. That's that's the only way I can really describe it. That feeling is that because uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is: Were there any defining moments of your childhood that set you on the path that you've taken? Was it that feeling of mm. those polar extremes and that pool, or is mm. there any other influence? Particularly in my childhood, I think. Again, it was the volatile like situation at home continued to grow, and things got. It, it wasn't an easy childhood and I love my parents and they're really a great people but I think you know sometimes two people don't belong together right and there was there was at times a lot of different types what we call abuse right mm-hmm. verbal physical emotional and I was at the age of 15 16 I was I was suicidal and I would journal a lot in my room and I was going through a lot as a young child. I wasn't just at the age of six. I was diagnosed with um, legally diagnosed with um, a learning disability, dyslexia, and I never really talk about it because I I remember sitting at the counselor's office um, and had asked her, "I really want to get retested." Because at the time, they had me in a separate Mm -hmm. room taking English and, and like, math. And I was like, I want to get reintegrated into, like, I want to take AP English. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me. She's like, you have a permanent uh, disability. It's probably almost impossible that you'll get into AP uh, English. Um, And you should probably 
thank you know you're most likely you're not even gonna get a college degree that's how bad wow. my dyslexia was <clears throat> that could also damage um someone's self-perception and self-belief at that a young age to be told that i was so in young. terms of um self-fulfilling beliefs of course and i looked at her and i said i demand to be tested i had to be the one who like my parents were too busy mm. doing their thing and i i looked at her i was like i know for sure that i am allowed a test and i don't know what inside of me at the age of 15 like pushing her to do this but i did i, mm-hmm. I took the test i passed and i was put in ap english um the same woman who told me that i would never get college For degree, people outside the u.s what yeah. describe what ap english is it's like an advanced english class mm-hmm. basically okay. that would would get recognized when you go to college mm-hmm. it's like a curriculum that you typically don't take in high school level it's like it's considered a college level um class. i mean i suffer from i wouldn't say learning issues but i did i fractured my skull when i was seven and i had a personality change and it led me to having very li- from having very good attention to having no attention mm-hmm. because of the fractured totally. skull uh, and the concussion that i suffered and i after, ever since that point onward, I had some form of mild dyslexia, particularly reading things. My mm-hmm. reading speed went down and my ability to see a, even a headline in a newspaper, I would read something completely different. So when you describe your voracious appetite for books, that's surprising as well for someone that's been diagnosed as dyslexic. It's, it is hard. I, speaking from my own sort of perspective, I still find it hard to read at speed. Yeah, so... Exactly. I still, it takes me longer than an average person Mm. to read. Um, And, but I I also was writing backwards and upside down. Uh, It was (laughs) like, it was, I have an old journal from when I was six years old. And literally, you cannot read it. It's literally every single letter is like, literally Mm. reversed and upside down. (laughs) So my brain, and to me, that looked normal, Uh you know, and um I had such great teachers that worked with me and it was caught so early that a lot of that was corrected. Mm -hmm. But you will see it in my grammar and my spelling. I always have to have someone proofread my stuff because there is no way that I can correct it. It's the benefit of Grammarly. It's a big big bonus in my life. Right? Grammarly's uh, premium. Um, But when, you know, it's interesting, like it's always affected me, my reading speed. And and the problem with that is like some exams in the industry as a a designer and architect, Mm -hmm. uh, when I had to get my lead AP certification, when it first came out, I had to learn not just the interior design portion of it. It was structural engineer and um, how to retro- rectify like a, um, a a land that might be chemically it needed to be chemically cleaned up. And so, I literally had to study every se- single section. Now the exam is broken up to your specific niche in the industry, um, and I had to take the exam three times and. Every single time it was because I was rushing through and it's a timed exam. And I would miss it by one point and because I was rushing through it. And finally, I decided to reach out to my college administrator, who was my disability coach, and had to get a letter from her and get a letter from the doctor. And, you know, she she wrote a really great letter and said, you know, not many students, you know, many kids are diagnosed under the 504, you know, ADA Act. Um, th- this is is a permanent permanent 
um, disability. Um, and so with that letter, I was able to get an extension for to take the exam on time the third time, and then I passed the lead AP like exam. But it was really important to be to have that certification, and that was twenty years ago. You know, it was it was like when it first literally came out. I was I've always believed in the um, being an advocate for the environment. Um, like the earth was always important and. I don't know if it was because my father loved uh, loved to like have a little garden every summer we would plant seeds in the backyard and we would grow cucumbers and tomatoes and just a slew of some st- mint like for for mint tea um monachea, which is like seeds that you probably shouldn't mm-hmm. have here but it's from Egypt <laughs> <laughs> It's like a green soup, basically. You're beginning me to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, he doesn't do that anymore. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. But back in the day, it was kind of funny. But um, I think I think I have I had a love for building and mm-hmm. for earth because I think my dad had um, a knack of an interest in antiques. Mm-hmm. We would always go to like, um, uh, uh, what did they call it? Um, garage sales and and moving sales and uh estate sales Mm -hmm. and look for little finds and he would tell me like oh this is a unique piece from this century and he'd like look at these details um i built physically our backyard deck like um patio with my Mm -hmm. father at the age of eight like mixing cement Uh and stuff you know and it was like for for my dad i think it was like free labor (laughs) (laughs) And for me, I was learning vocational training. Yeah, Yeah. and I was the eldest, but I think my mom used to yell at my father, "Stop! Make her do things outside." You know, Mm. I mean, it was like mid eighties, like um, late Uh nineties, and I was literally mowing the lawn and doing all these activities outside. You know, like Mm -hmm. if I was a boy, (laughs) you know, back in the day, you know, those things were like gender. Um, assigned right (laughs) and whoa she she would say she's not gonna know how to cook for her husband (laughs) and i was like mom don't worry i watch you i'm like i'm a very a a visual person she Uh didn't really understand that i learned visually right and so i would see her like cutting you know the tomatoes and the onions and you know making her like north african stew dish and i I literally knew how to make it just by like running in the kitchen Mm -hmm. for a few minutes watching her and running out um and i think there was an incident probably like 15 years ago she was ill and she was about to cancel thanksgiving dinner and i was like don't cancel it i'll cook and and she was like you cook (laughs) (laughs) she did not believe i could cook a thanksgiving dinner i did everything from the turkey to like uh, making butternut uh, uh, nut squash soup yeah. from scratch, um, and then she said, "Well, let me like make make some traditional dishes just in case like the, everything else doesn't come out." But they talked about that dinner for many many mm-hmm. years later. Like they could not believe it. Mm-hmm. But because I left I left the house at the age of uh, seventeen mm-hmm. to go to college. And end up uh, learning that you could take a student loan. I didn't have any money to pay for living on campus. And I needed to get out of that environment because it was, and I think that was a catalyst. Like Mm -hmm. it was me being depressed and wanting to move out of that environment that kind of pushed me Mm -hmm. to the next level. Because this 
go back because you said that you felt suicidal age 16 was it the environment of the arguing and the abuse that you were witnessing i think it was a combination it was definitely that was a, a part of it but mm-hmm. i think also being confined to what their thought process on culture and community and what like how i was supposed to be mm-hmm. I, I i was because the way i thought never really fit in the box mm-hmm. They kept pushing me to, like, be a certain way. Like, I was... And that nonconformity in you was rebelling. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was... I felt... I remember what I did. I wrote a letter, a five-page letter to my parents after I found out my loan was approved and I was able to get housing on campus. I, like, wrote this letter, packed my bag, and I was going to have my friend Marcella who had helped me get this loan to come and pick me up in her car and drive me to school. Well, my my dad found that letter and my suitcase and he said, "Let, you know, I need to talk to you about something I found." And <sighs> anytime we have a conversation in the living room, you know it's serious. I'm like, "Oh, here we go." <laughs> <laughs> so we sat down and he was like, "What is this?" And I was like, "Well, go ahead and read it. It's for you, you know." So he opens this letter and he quietly reads it. And I I remember distinctly his face uh, looking up at me. And he knew at that time, and I don't remember exactly what I wrote, Mm. but um, that he couldn't say no. Mm -hmm. Um, I clearly indicated that I was unhappy and that that this is the only way, you know. And so he said, okay, with stipulation that you come home every weekend um and that you get a beeper <laughs> so he could mm-hmm. page me if he needed me <laughs> this was before cell phones yeah. right and so i said sure no problem so we agreed we came to an agreement and that's what i did every weekend i would come spend the weekend with my family they even you know took the time to drive me to campus and move me and into this my was your degree in psychology so yeah so i i have a double major a bfa mm-hmm. um and fine arts and um uh, and a ba in psych i also have um gender studies mm-hmm. as a minor and art therapy as a second minor and all these things were so interesting to me to study. But initially, I just wanted to major in fine arts. And he's like, you're not going to get a job. In it. You're going to be a poor artist on the streets of New York City. No way am I going to pay for your education. And you are going <laughs> to just have but a BFA. Would, I mean, what was your plan um, at school? Did you have an ambition in any sense of the direction you were going to go and you mm-hmm. ending up mm-hmm. with your f- focus on functional design? I mean, that, again, is an mm-hmm. indication of your... Um, eclectic interests in many subjects mm-hmm. in your sort of yeah. polymath type character yeah. that you or was it through design that you selected each of these no it was actually or was it just a rampant curiosity to learn I mean I, I was drawing and sketching since I was six years old I always loved the arts mm-hmm. um, I always I love food and cooking I loved a lot of I, I had a lot of interests I even played the piano and played the flute you know and I think for me it was exploring the world and exploring what brought me joy was where how I kind of ended up where I am today, right? I think I people always ask me, like, I'm lost. How do I find my way? And I'm like, well, one, what is important to you? Where are your values? 
and then what brings you joy and I think innately that's what I was doing as a kid until up to today I was just doing things that brought me joy because I was in a place of unhappiness and all I was looking for was a feeling of happiness and I always had interest of design and architecture but I did I know at that time I was going to pursue it no I mean because I was so psychologically influenced and by the the situation at home actually I started studying social psychology and I was going to be a social worker. I attended a lot of cl- like uh, a prep class and um, they had three people who were in the field come and talk to students. And after all the stories I heard, I was like, I could definitely not do this. I'm extremely sensitive. I can feel other people's feelings. I would be like a miserable person. So I, I quickly decided that psychology would be my second major because my dad it was like our compromise. Find something else to study. You could double major. Um, he wanted he wanted to make sure I was secure in a job. You know, he didn't come all the way here to leave his entire family behind, so I could have you know a fluffy job that I may or may not you know be it gave able you to... joy, but no, yeah, <laughs> it didn't exactly. take you anywhere. Yeah, yeah. he's like, I, I want to make sure you're going to be uh, you're going to be able to pay your bills and mm-hmm. live a good life, right? And so I understood that. I heard it. And I wanted to honor everything they did too, right? Like they left everything behind to give us a better life. Mm. And so, yeah, it's part of me struggled with like wanting to give myself joy and and also respecting their journey as well. And that was my happy medium, mm-hmm. studying psychology and fine arts. Psychology was really important to me because I – Early childhood development is so, it's so crucial. People do not understand how crucial it is. I think the brain, a child's brain is really open. It's like a sponge. Mm-hmm. It could really soak up multiple languages. You're uh, there just because children can't speak doesn't mean they're not absorbing mm-hmm. and taking an energy and uh, understanding of the world. And I think because of the situation between my mother and father, um, it definitely impacted me and and not in a good way, you know? And I think I had to work backwards. I had to reprogram my brain and work through mm-hmm. lots of therapy to, like, get through a better place. And besides therapy, healing, the healing arts, the, you know, Reiki yeah. and energy healing and all sorts of things, so. It, it is interesting that the the lack of appreciation until – recent decades about the impact on the the neuroplasticity of children from an early age. I mean, it's interesting you talked about that age eight, which is the time when children reach that point of, let's say, um, maturity Mm -hmm. in terms of their mental um, maturity, where radical sort of change can't happen at the same way pace it has done up to those those critical first eight years. Um, That's right. We interviewed... um, Kelly Lauf uh, runs an organization called MindSpark a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago, and she's doing amazing work with STEM, really working from a wow. deliberately working from K through eight as a key ages um, to really get children and to sort of accelerate their creativity and to spark it and to allow them to sort of pursue their natural areas of interest. And I think there is a she talks about um, 
the fact that her mission is to re-engineer education. And I think it's, it's it. very interesting when you start to see people like her emerge and it gives you hope for what the future of humanity might be like and we move towards a, a machine learning AI That's uh, right. driven world. Yeah, I think it's really important. It's really, really crucial that we kind of, I think education is at the core of all our issues, mm. really, to be honest. Like, you know, the race, race issues that we're currently having, um, the environmental issues, like, it's all about educating the youth and really, really early on, mm. on everything, you know. Yeah. Let's not talk about the pandemic. <laughs> oh, and the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Jesus. <laughs> um, well, okay, so you said you did um, your psychology double... Um, psychology and fine arts you've got a ma in higher ed um and your interior design degree from parsons but if also you went to fit fashion institute of technology mm -hmm. and advanced arabic studies in beirut i mean this is quite um an eclectic educational journey um where has serendipity played its part in your journey yeah it's funny so um, because I was super active on campus as an undergraduate, um, I met, I, I was always hanging out with the deans of the school and trying to find ways to give back. Um, I was, for me, giving back was, brings me a lot of joy. And, um, long story short, uh, I, I was really close to one of the deans because I was working. There was a grant given to the uh, the college because I went to a small college called Ramapo College in, in Mawa, New Jersey, mm -hmm. and they um, it was a, a grant to uh, educate students that they can have fun without um, drugs and alcohol. And so, w with the dean's uh, permission, I was sitting on this and I said, "Let's create these incredible concerts." Uh, where people are having fun and there's music and there's alternative, there's no alcohol and there's just like cool drinks uh, uh -huh. that are non-alcoholic. And so we would do this. So we did it and we filmed it and like uh, the government was like, how incredible, you know. And so like the grant kept coming. So I established really good relationships with the deans and um, this particular dean had graduated from Columbia Law School and he, and he said, do you know what your next steps are in your education? And I said, I have no idea. I guess I'll just get a job in psychology. Mm -hmm. Like, And he said, well, you know, what about higher education? I was like, well, what is that? Like, I thought you have a psych degree. And he's like, well, some of us have psych degrees that work in a university, and some of us have a higher education degree. And it's the study of students mm -hmm. and how, like, psychologically they grow and implementing different types of programs for they for them to learn about leadership and social justice. And so I was like, okay. So I started reading more and more about the industry, at that particular niche market. And I was like, okay, I great. So where do we go to school? And he's like, well, Columbia Teachers College has a great school, uh, NYU, and uh, he mentioned a third place. So I applied to Columbia and NYU mm. with his support and his recommendations I got actually um I got accepted to both both Columbia and NYU and I was like so shocked because I was like oh my god mm. I got into yeah. Ivy League school and um I remember getting my parents were like oh you got some letters they're on <laughs> the stairs so I, I was like and I opened them and I ran downstairs I remember my mom was cooking in the kitchen and I was like mom I got accepted to Columbia and NYU for a master's degree and like she was like oh that's nice like and she totally dismissed it and 
my dad was like, well, we're not paying for that, you know, and, <laughs> and I was like, all I wanted to, them to do is be happy, you know, and uh, the next steps for me was to figure out how, how to pay, pay for them, <laughs> <laughs> how to pay for, for, but um, long story short, because Columbia was one, a one year program, NYU was mm-hmm. a two year program, I um, decided to go with NYU also because I had a sco- half a sco- uh, scholarship for for the two years um and i went ahead and went went to nyu got my master's in higher education administration and then i followed it up with a psych psych um a master's in psych but in in that process my first year of doing my master's degree at nyu i had a ga ship uh with um the student affairs office a grad assistantship, okay. a GA ship, mm-hmm. a grad assistantship. Yeah. So um, I was working in the student affairs office and I had a woman who was my um, supervisor and Bob, uh, and then her supervisor was Bob Butler. And basically I was assigned around, I don't know, I think 70 or 80 student clubs to mm-hmm. like be their advisor. And, um, and then we were also launching a leadership and social justice program where graduate and undergrads could sign up for it and then get a certificate at, at the end of the program. So I was helping develop these things. Mm-hmm. My supervisor ends up quitting and Bob, her boss, and the team of individuals, um, um, I think there was Myung, I forget the other coordinators, Marcella, and, who I was working with, were basically... They encouraged me to apply for the position. Typically, you're not allowed to apply for uh, any position at the university if you don't have at least your master's. Mm-hmm. And because I was like, how is this going to be possible? They're like, just just interview for it. So I interviewed for it. I ended up getting the position. They fast-tracked it up to the, you know, the president. Mm-hmm. They all agreed that I was going to be a good fit. And that really was exciting but i also was really nervous because i was living in the dormitory on third and 11th street um and i was a ra i was a resident assistant to get free housing and a meal plan um because again my parents didn't want to pay for school so i had to kind of finagle and figure things out so of course i used my leadership skills and my knowledge i landed not just a grad assistantship but an ra a resident assistantship too. So I was doing programming at night and I was um, responsible for three floors of like over, you know, probably 300 students. You know, they would knock on my door late at night. I cut my finger. I had to take Uh to the hospital. Like, (laughs) like, so besides studying, getting a master's degree um, and being dyslexic and like Uh running, like working with 70, you know, student clubs and doing all this stuff. I was also doing other work on the side. I didn't really sleep very much. Um, I had to give up that uh, resident assistant. Like, I was becoming a faculty member, Uh basically, at the university. While studying. While studying. And had to give up the RA because I was a student at the time. Mm. And I had nowhere to live. So I was like, where am I going to go? And Bob, my boss now directly my boss, called me in a week after and he said, uh, I know this might sound strange, but uh, so my boss, Sally Arthur, her boss, Naomi Levine, is a vice president of external affairs at NYU. 
basically one down from the mm-hmm. president at the time, Jay Oliva. And, uh, and uh, her husband just passed away, and she's looking for a student to live with. She mm-hmm. has an extra apartment uh, across the hallway. So I was like, okay, why not? So I go meet Naomi, not really researching or doing my, you know, I'm like, I'll go just meet this older woman uh-huh. who needs a roommate, basically. Uh, she had um, a heart condition and she was nervous, right? So I go meet Naomi Levine and she asked me a couple of questions. She's really short to the point. And uh, she's, I already know a lot about you. Um why do you think uh, you know you would be a good fit? I was like, well, I'm a, I'm I'm really kind and um, and I can cook Thanksgiving. I was <laughs> like, and if you need something, I'm here, you know. And so the rule was, I needed to be home by 9 p.m. So for the exchange of the apartment across the hallway, which she used as an office, but it was literally a full apartment that the university gave her. Mm. And it was at 37 Washington Square West. Wow. Yeah, and. Um, so I was supposed to be there for six months until I got my own apartment. I was supposed to move in with a friend, Nicole, and her her family had, you know, apartments in, in New Jersey, like in Edgewater. Long story short, it didn't work out, and I remember coming home. By this time, Naomi was not talking to me for the first two months. I would leave her little love notes on the doorsteps with her New York Times, mm-hmm. and I would call her every night and say, hey, I'm home. Do you need anything? And she would just like, fine, and I'd hang up. <laughs> um, but after six months, we became friends. Mm-hmm. Um, we were having breakfast together on the weekends, um, and we'd go for long walks, um, and I told her I came I came I came home one night crying and she said I said I don't know like this apartment thing fell through I don't know what to do and she said well I'm I'm still looking for somebody a roommate and why don't you come move mm-hmm. in with me and I said okay but you know that if I'm going to be your roommate you're not going to boss me around because she had a <laughs> reputation you know she had a huge office and she was you know quite stern mm-hmm. with people and. She said, yeah, yeah, it's fine. So How I'm, old was she? She was 70, I think I would say 72. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, so Naomi, she's so humble mm-hmm. when it comes to talking about who she really was. Uh, but she went. She was the first uh, woman at, well, first three women at a, to graduate from Columbia Law School. She grad, Her friends were Ruth... Uh, RBG, mm-hmm, yeah, and she used to talk about it. Oh yeah, Ruth, uh, she was so quiet. No one really liked her, you know. <laughs> and I really, <laughs> well, many people say, yeah, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, yeah, didn't really like her. <laughs> well, because she she was like she didn't she didn't understand the appeal. She said she was smart, but oh. she wasn't like dynamic like mm. Naomi. Like mm. she could really command a room. And so they went to school together, graduated together. They were fr- friends, you know, but it was kind of funny. Healthy rivalry, let's say. Right, exactly. <laughs> it was really funny. Um, but Naomi did a lot of great things in her in her time. And besides raising $2.5 billion for the university and really taking mm. it out of debt, um, she, was, she was really well known uh, besides all the philanthropy for the Jewish community in New York. Um, She's done a lot of incredible things um, in her lifetime, but she just recently passed away in January, and New York Times did a beautiful article about her. And um, But 20, 
two years, she became that grandmother parent figure I've always wanted in my life. Um, we had healthy, you know, arguments, mm-hmm. and um, because I was her plus one to everything, uh, I would, you know, I met Larry Silverstein and went and, you know, we went on their his yacht, you know, when we went oh, to go. What an extraordinary sort of relationship. Yeah, we had, a, I mean, people were always so shocked that I was able to, like, break through her barrier. Mm-hmm. She had, she Did had. Did she a, not have children? She had a child, Joan. Mm-hmm. Um, and two grandchildren, but there, Joan and her were not very close. Mm-hmm. And at, during the 22 years I knew Naomi, I would encourage her to like be better, you know, by calling Joan and having a mm-hmm. relationship with her. And I said, listen, if I, if I can build a relationship with my parents and it's, it wasn't easy, you know, we didn't meet eye to eye, you can too. That's what I used to say to her. And we had different political views. We're obviously different religiously. She was Jewish. I was Muslim, you know, different, huge age group. When I moved in with her, I was 21 years old. Wow. When I, yeah. So when I finished my first master's, I was 21 years old. And I, and so there were so many differences between us. We would have lots of arguments, sometimes ended in a lot of crying and, and slamming doors. But we, we loved each other so much. So her passing was really hard How on me. How long did you live uh, with her? So on so a total of 15 years, because um, I ended up going back to live with her when I was doing my, um, my degree at Parsons, mm-hmm. when I was switching fields. Yeah. And um, I had to cut costs. Mm-hmm. And so she said, oh, you know, my nurse, like, left, so why don't you come live back here? Um, and she was, oh, she was literally like family. She always mm-hmm. wanted to support and help me. She really believed in, you know, she saw the, the fire in me and, like, saw part of me and her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just kind of – she always said – she always said, look, if I could – go from the Bronx to Park Avenue, you can too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was my biggest cheerleader. But I mean, I I think a lot of people don't know who she was, but she really did incredible things. I'll put the article in the show notes. Naomi? B. Levine. B. Levine, right. Yeah. Um, You talked about that that switch in career focus of going to Parsons. Um, I mean, what... What was it led you to then make that pivot and say this is going to be my main uh, predominant focus? I really I wanted to continue to push and be more creative. I felt like even though I was doing incredible things at NYU, I was still a fact, you know part of the administrative team at NYU mm-hmm. and part of, during nine eleven and doing human like doing all such incredible things at the university, being support team to uh, other faculty, students of color. But I felt like a part of me was missing. I was still not being fully creative the way Mm -hmm. I wanted to be. And it's funny because when I was doing my undergrad, uh, halfway through, I applied to Parsons and FIT. Um, and I think I was 19 years old and I got accepted to both schools for interior architecture and design, (laughs) but I didn't tell my parents. I just applied. Mm -hmm. And I, then I was like, do I wait and graduate it, graduate with a double major and a double minor, or do I switch now? And, and I was like, and I don't really, 
after a lot of thinking, I was like, I don't want to get into al- altercation with dad. <laughs> I don't want to. Again. Again. Um, so I said, you know what? Let me wait. And uh-huh. then I didn't think I was going to end up getting accepted to Columbia NYU. So I figured the next route would to apply to reapply uh-huh. to Parsons at FAT. But then I got in. So I said, I'm, I took the leap of faith and I wanted to support the idea of go, being a lawyer, accountant, uh-huh, or, yeah. you know, right? Like, so that was the closest I would ever get to, to like, you know, getting into that structure in terms of getting into a field. I'm mm. not going to be a lawyer. I wasn't going to be an accountant. I wasn't going to be an engineer. But if I got a master's in higher education administration, I think my dad, my my parents would be proud. Oh, it's a stable. Mark, yeah. Exactly. And I felt a little bit guilty at one point. And so I was like, let me pursue something they would be happy with. Mm-hmm. And and I was interested in the field. I And I loved the time. I was in the field for four years. And I, I loved everything I did. Um, and I, I think a part of that work is represented in the work that I do now. Um, but I felt like a piece of me was missing. So I reapplied to Parsons and FIT and they were like looking at my portfolio. They were like, I had a, a, a robust portfolio because I had taken uh, a couple of classes at NYU and then another community college of interior design mm. and like learned about space planning and sketching. I had tons of sketches and drawings and but like they were like this is you have to do like this little exam that with the application but it was so robust they're like you're obviously accepted because i Mm -hmm. went in for an interview as well and they're like well there i have no comments everything is great Mm -hmm. you know and i got accepted and that was that was really it and naomi was like like my parents like i can't believe you're switching fields i thought she was going to encourage me (laughs) she was just like why are you going back to school? You're going to pay all this extra money. And it's it's funny because she was like a supporter, but mm-hmm. then she also was worried because she, she had grown to love me as a daughter, as a grandchild. And she then also became similar to my parents where she was like, well, NYU, like, you, you know, it's safe. Mm-hmm. You know, you have your 401k and you're this and you're that. And, you know, it's like, a little nice package, mm-hmm. right? And I was like, Naomi, I know I'm going to do really well in this field. This is where my passion lies. Like, all these things that I've been doing, I love, and I want to continue to do it, but I want to continue to do it in, mm-hmm. through a lens of creativity and through architecture and design. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't an easy road. You know, it's like um, there's a lot of math and technical mm-hmm. things, skill sets that you have to learn and being dyslexic, it's a you know it, it took me time to get passed through, and uh-huh. at the time you had to also learn how to draft by hand. Wow, I mean, unlike now, for yeah, yeah unlike now, it's, that's not part of the mm-hmm. curriculum. I had an old school teacher, and she was like, "No, you have to redraw this," and like, and it's like I have these old drafting pencils, and I believe like the that you know. The semester after, I think they cut that class because they were integrating more technology. But I was still like, mm-hmm. still like, basically, if you didn't pass that class, you couldn't move on. Mm-hmm. And and of course, we learned CAD, 
you know, all the architectural programs as well. But like, she's like, well, what happens to your computer crashes? And then you have to deliver some to client. You have to know how to draft by hand. I'm glad I know how to do it because a lot of people don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. But does it ever happen? No. Yeah. <laughs> Never once to have to deliver something to a client on a, a draft of floor plan by hand. <laughs> yeah. Well, but it's good to have this. Who knows? Set. There might be a cyber attack at some point. That no, you, know, you, know. you just don't know. <laughs> You've got that up your sleeve. Okay, we're going to leave part one there. In part two, we dive deep into Sarah's journey, her career, and her future vision. And of course, we cover all the quickfire questions. See you next time. Okay. That's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, recommend, or review, depending on where you listen. And if you have someone you'd like us to interview, just DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network or email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com. And please give our other podcast, The Raw Hospitality Show, a listen. They are both Fabrica Collective Productions. See you next time. <laughs>